Hello and welcome to another episode of God, Sex, and Sangria. I'm Lori and I'm here with the gorgeous Rachel, my co-host. And Rachel and I were talking about why we do what we do. And Rachel said something really interesting where she said, oh, I don't do this so people can have better sex. And I was like, what? She's like, no, it's not. And for those who don't know, Rachel is a uh, sex therapist and works with people, the intersections of spirituality and sex and helps people heal their relationship with their sexuality. And I just assumed that the reason, the, the pumping reason behind Rachel's work is so that people can have better sex. And that was not what she said. So I'm going to let Rachel answer it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what is this secret mission behind Rachel's work. Rachel, why do you do what you do? Oh, is it secret? So mostly it's actually to fix politics. (laughs) Being from the DC area, everything in my life has always been around politics. And I think that so often what we've seen, at least in the US, and it's been spreading to other countries as well recently, is that Christianity's conversation around sexuality has an more of an impact on our politics and our policies than it should. And there's a whole slew of reasons around that that could be fixed with like better education around government and particularly that line that says separation of church and state. But there's even more of it I think can actually be solved by changing what we talk about in our churches and how we talk about the things that we talk about in our churches regarding sexuality. So Part of it's that if I can be a voice for that better conversation that should be happening, and I very intentionally use the word should because I have that strong of a belief around it, that it sh- that should be happening in churches, if we can change that conversation, we would actually be living in a less patriarchal, more feminist, more truly Christian society, though it shouldn't have to be Christian because separation of church and state. It's interesting that the way you talk about it is like specifically Christian and not just religion in general. And you're specifically calling out Christianity, which I think is interesting and important, especially when I think we often say religion and we just mean Christianity and we're just critiquing Christianity. And how does that influence your – so I know that we've had a whole episode about why we don't identify as Christian anymore – How does that then influence you with that relationship between the church and not identifying as a member of of Christianity, but yet also critiquing Christianity in that space? So I've seen people over the years who attempt to critique Christianity from really being an outsider. And what happens is they critique a very small, very immature understanding of Christianity. And I'm thinking here of like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and, you know, that whole pantheon of people. And it it doesn't work as a critique because it's not nuanced. And I think the concept of nuance has come up a lot for me lately because it seems like people tend to just want things to be simple. And so they just like throw this random thing over top of a very complex topic And this isn't something that happened nearly as often in Boston because people are so highly educated that nuance is like what everyone is swimming in. But in Boulder, Colorado, that is not nearly as much of the case. Not that we're not educated, not that, you know, there is a university here, but there's more people who don't really get the nuance of things. And so when we're trying to critique something without nuance, our critique is really half-baked. 
And so somebody who's really well educated and also has the lived experience of being in a Christian space can offer a critique that's far more nuanced and far more respectful of the reality of what people are living in as Christians. And that's what I think is really important. Thank you for that, because I think it's also a really important foundation for any of our listeners who are not Christian and maybe don't come from that same background who might be like, well, why are we talking about Christianity in the church when it's like, well, no, it's actually, it's very specific. This is, this is the specific. We're being specific because it's specific. So t- let's talk more about the politi- politics and Christianity and sex and how those three things intersect with each other. And when, like even maybe some examples of like, how does Christianity and politics and sex intersect with each other? Is it, my first thought is, is it just about abortion and birth control? Or is it, is that really all we need to be talking about? And can't we just then make healthy abortions accessible and affordable to everyone and, and healthy birth control available to everyone? And then just, they can just stay out of my bedroom. Is it that simple? What what else is coming to mind for you? Yeah, so I'm thinking abortion and gay marriage and even trans rights. A lot of these things, even understanding like being a trans person versus being an intersex person and the simplistic way, the overly simplified way that Christianity tends to look at gender and how that impacts our politics. And it impacts our politics because the people who are being elected to political positions tend to be Christian. Yes, we have Bernie Sanders, but most of the people that are in Congress right now would identify as Christian. And part of why they identify as Christian is regardless of if they're going to church on Sundays, it's good for votes for them to identify as Christian because the majority of this country identifies as Christian. And because of gerrymandering, we also sort of collect more conservative people who are also tending to be Christian into specific districts so that we vote for people who are conservative Christians. So it's layers upon layers of stuff, but we end up in a country that's primarily ruled by Christians, whether they be conservative, like Marjorie Green, who's like not living a very Christian life, but identifies as Christian, or someone like Pete Buttigieg, who is Christian, but not conservative. He's very much more on the liberal spectrum of Christianity. And the reason that it's specifically, we mentioned this a little bit before, but the reason that I'm specifically critiquing Christianity is because Judaism doesn't have the same positions on these topics, right? For in traditional Judaism, life doesn't start until the first breath because they're actually looking at the Bible. (laughs) And I'm not sure what like Islam would say, and I'm not sure what Hinduism would say, but if I don't even know what they would say about that, that's proof that they're not impacting our politics. Because if there was a massive group of Muslims saying, this is what we should say about gay marriage, we would probably all know what Islam teaches about gay marriage. I mean, my assumption is that they're probably against it generally if they're like a more traditional Muslim person, but I really don't know because that's one religion I really have not studied like at all. Yeah. So I'm thinking of abortion and gay marriage and trans rights and the realization, the recognition of intersexuality as a reality rather than just a strange thing or a mistake because oftentimes the theologies that come out of Christianity treat intersexuality as a mistake rather than as a reality and a place where God's presence is also found. So 
that's why Christianity needs to be the critique. And that's why those things get talked about a lot in my mind is these are the issues that are around sexuality. And those are issues that are really hot topics within U.S. politics. And they're also issues that impact all of us at a very, very deep, intimate level because it's about our sexuality. It's about our identity of how we interact with the rest of the world through deep intimacy because that's what sexuality is. And do you think it's an intimacy issue within Christianity's understanding of intimacy and then therefore our culture's understanding of intimacy? I mean, yes and no. I think that oftentimes in Christian writings, we talk about intimacy instead of talking about sexuality. Like, so there's sort of a weird, I don't know, I have this like gut impulse to like push the word intimacy away because it feels like a gross way that Christian writers will write about sex without having to use the word sex. I don't know if you experienced that in grad school, Lori, but that was something that like was really frustrating and kind of gross to me. Yeah. I mean, it also drove me nuts because I kind of felt like we were talking around the problem. Like, let's just talk around it and not really say it. And while in some ways I liked that sex was broadened into the concept of intimacy. So like if I can't have intimacy with my friend, if like I'm afraid of that type of intimacy, like an emotional intimacy, then how can I have a deep sexual intimacy with another person and like dissecting that issue? But I also – and like the intimacy of the Eucharist and we've done an episode on – the erotic Eucharist and like the beauty and the intimacy of all of those things. But what really, I think when it came down to it, it's like, but we're talking about, we're talking about sex and we're only justifying sex because it's intimate. Whereas like not all sex is intimate. Yeah. And like, we have to have space to have those conversations as well. Like it kind of elevated sex to a degree where I think it got messy. Yes. And like the way that We can only talk about sex if we're talking about intimacy rather because sex in and of itself, like the physical actions that are involved in sex are gross or not sacred enough by themselves. So we have to sanctify it by using this word intimacy. Anyway, so that's like my like gut instinct around intimacy is to be like, ugh, gross, but not because it's gross, but because it's been misused in these contexts. (laughs) And so in a sense, yeah, it is an intimacy issue within Christianity, but not necessarily intimacy with other people, but rather intimacy with what it means to be an incarnate being, which is why so much of my work is really more about like embodiment. But I don't, even that word sort of has a weird connotation now because people keep talking about it and using it in all these different ways. But really that deep incarnational wisdom that I think Christianity can offer if it's done well. And if we really see the incarnation and really see, you know, I think I was reading something from the Center for Action and Contemplation today that was a quote from Richard Rohr about St. Francis of Assisi, about how the whole world was seen as infused with God. And so anything I see that's in this incarnate world is the image of God being reflected to me. He said that St. Francis of Assisi saw everything as a mirror. That was the language he used, but a mirror of God's presence. And so when we think about it that way, that means that when we see the loving gay couple, they are the image of God. They are a mirror of God's love. And we have to see that for the person who's intersex. And we have to see that for the person who's transgender. And we have to see that for the woman who's, or the person who's pregnant and is making a decision about whether or not to terminate that pregnancy. All of those things have to be seen as the image of God, even the ones that feel not so great. And this is where 
I'm currently in the process of reading Anatheism by Richard Carney, who will be on this podcast in an upcoming episode to talk both about that book and his book on touch and also just the phenomenology of Eros. But part of what that book includes is a pretty amazing treatment of, sorry for the academies there, but like he talks about the Holocaust and how we can still be someone who believes in God post-Holocaust. So when I'm saying something like something really horrible that I wish didn't exist, like abortion, but that it is a reality in this world, and so how can we see God even within that? I think what he talks about with atheism and with the Holocaust is actually a really good way to frame it. So he does a really good theodicy, is the fancy word, but study of God's justice by looking at evil, essentially. That's a side note. Where was I going with that, Lori? I don't know, but I, I also want to clarify that I don't think you're saying that comparing if you've had an abortion that you're equal to Nazis in the Holocaust oh, God. or oh, God, no. anything like that. <laughs> I just want to clarify that because I, no, I see no, no, the no. thread you're connecting and I just want to like yeah, it's just make like- it clear that you're talking about like horrible things happen. <sighs> and I think about a lot about when I think about abortion in this context, I think about a friend of mine who said, Am I really happy I had an abortion? Yes. Am I also wish that I was never in the situation where I had to have an abortion and I really was having to being in a situation where I had to make the decision horrific? Yes. So it is evil in that sense, which why it can go under the umbrella of evil, but not evil to have an abortion. I just wanted to yes. and clarify I think that. Where thread. I was thinking was like was definitely more like somebody being in a position where they have to make that choice. That's the that's the part that's I don't want to use the word evil, but like that's the not fully graced situation, not the actual having of, a, of an abortion. Right. Right. That's actually the the thinking I was having, which is a really different way of seeing like that as the, the problem. It's like it's not a sin to be homeless, but the fact that you are homeless indicates that there is sin. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That things are not perfect in this world. Because if things were perfect, women would be able to control when they got pregnant just by thinking our way through it. But I think there's also a way in which that that's also really tied to Tantra, this idea of seeing even the imperfect things in the world as being somehow part of the image of God. That's that's Tantric, which is also why I talk about Tantra, because that's that's really the gold that's in Tantra is that idea of how can we really expand our, our understanding of God and our spiritual experience of God to include even the things that we would consider profane or not good or not totally positively, beautifully graced, while at the same time also continuing to see the graced things as full of the divine. And I think when it comes to this intimacy problem within Christianity, you're really looking at like, how can we see the grace in all of the things that exist, not just the things that fit into this small box that somebody at some point in time said was the only box that should exist. Mm. I think that also goes back to like, so it's not just intimacy with one another, which I think we're also lacking a lot in our, in Christianity. And now I'm seeing it also very much connect to politics. I think a lot of times when we are in cancel culture, which I've participated in, numerous times but also feel like it is a lack of the intimacy is how do I understand this person and call them in and bring them into a space of and call in is also like an overused word and I think has become confusing but like bring someone into the collective community and send give them love so that they can understand their wrong 
instead of almost like a child where we like bring them in to our, like we hold them and we say like, this is where you did, where, where, where we're making bad choices versus, and like, should we talk about your choices and like think about how we can maybe make better choices versus what we often do, what many of us were raised with is go to your room, get out, leave, think about who you are, you banishment mentality, which I think is where a call out culture comes from. And that very much has its roots in Christianity. That very much has its roots in Protestant American understandings because the indigenous people in 1630 were not banishing members of their community. The concept of banishment is what Puritans and pilgrims brought to this land to say there are people who are in and fit into our collective community and there are people who don't. And when you don't, and when you break the mold or challenge the mold in any way, whether good or bad, you're out. And yeah, it's a, it's a product. And that is then of course brought into the way we parent and then the way we understand our communities at large. It's a Christian concept. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about how Christianity has even affected the way we understand good and evil. Yeah. And I think one of the things that my ex-husband and I used to always talk about is, and this is a quote from somebody who is like a political pundit, but they were talking about how if we had one generation, what we need is one generation of untraumatized conservatives. Because if you are not traumatized, you are able to be more compassionate towards someone who has a different opinion. And I think it's true, too, that like right now we're in a weird political situation where it's not like the conservatives are the only people traumatized and like shoving things down other people's throats. It's happening on both sides of the aisle. But there does seem to be more of it in a more aggressive way. Like the critique that conservatism offers in their humor is biting in a way that Stephen Colbert is not. And I don't know how to explain it other than like it just feels really cruel versus it's kind of lighthearted. Not that that's always true, but it's sometimes true. And so this idea of like calling out that Lori was just talking about, that's a traumatizing experience because we are tribal communal creatures. And therefore, if we get kicked out of our community, we will die in the wilderness because we can't survive by ourselves. And in some ways, the teaching of hell and the teaching of eternal damnation and the idea that there's this like Santa Claus like God who's watching everything that you're doing and either putting you on the good list or the bad list is innately traumatizing. And there was an article in the Atlantic that I posted like a post from Instagram just last night about it that was saying that we've thought over the years that perhaps teaching our children that the world is unsafe would do something good for them. But as we've been finding in psychological studies is that it actually damages them because it's traumatizing to believe the world is scary or is evil. And it immediately brought me back to like saying at the end of mass while I was growing up, the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, which has a line in it about like, save us from basically Satan and all the evil demons who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. So literally there's, there's this teaching of, and it's not only in Catholicism. I'm sure that like evangelicalism teaches, like there are demons around lurking, trying, and it's in like the screw tape letters, right? From by CS Lewis, where like, there's these demons prowling about the world, trying to get your soul to think something's good and, and holy when it's really evil. So we have to be really on guard all the time for someone who's going to try to pull us away from, from what's good and from the good path. 
And that's innately traumatizing. It's innately giving us a space of not feeling safe and that the whole world ends up feeling like it's too much to process. And so when we all in this country are swimming in those in that soup, even if you weren't raised super Christian, we're all living in it. And then you add the capitalism thing that Lori and I have been talking about over the past several weeks of like, if you mess up, I'm thinking of the book specifically, The Defining Decade by some woman who is a psychologist who worked with people in their 20s. And basically that whole book is saying something that I think is a relatively decent cultural narrative, not decent in the sense that like it's good, but that it's heard a lot, is that if you don't find the right relationship in your 20s, if you don't pick the right career in your 20s, if you don't do the right things while you're in your 20s, you are going to be completely destroyed and you will live under a bridge, sad and alone for the rest of your life. (laughs) That is also a fear-based narrative that is traumatizing that we are all living in thanks to both puritanical work, like the Puritan work work ethic mixed with capitalism, mixed with a little bit of like demons prowling about the world, seeking the ruin of souls, all swimming around to make us all feel really scared of all the things that Lori and I talk about. Pleasure, enjoyment of anything really, rest, sex, orgasm, our bodies in general, our desire for food, our desires for something beautiful, all of that ends up being dangerous because the world is inherently dangerous and it disconnects us from ourselves. It stops that intimacy from being present. And it's really, really a big problem. And we see it actually showing up in our politics. Yes. Preach, Rachel, preach. I also, and I think again, like I'm, I am, I coming back to this word intimacy because it's an, it's an intimacy without us and it's intimacy with the self, which leads me into my next question is how you've talked about, that's why, this is why you talk about healing our relationship with the body. Because it's not just about healing, because the only way to heal this, to heal the trauma that has we've born from capitalism and colonization that, we, that our ancestors, well, Rachel and Mai's ancestors brought from colonization that we've inherited through generations and generations of, this concept of good and evil and Satan prowling like a roaring lion, which is a line in a Christian rock song too. And like, I, it's like now going to be in my head for the rest of the day. So for any ex-evangelicals. Hopefully not the melody too. Oh no, the whole thing. It's just, (laughs) I've been, I was like singing it in my head. I was trying to remember the chorus as you were talking. Uh, So like all the ex-evangelicals listening to this, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about and you're welcome. Enjoy your middle school memories. But like that, that trauma that is, is generational. So even if you are an atheist and your parents are atheists or you are a progressive Christian and your parents were progressive Christians and you, you like everything I'm saying, the, the, the remnants of this stuff is in your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. And this is why we have so much ancestral, which is why I do ancestral work with my clients. We have so much ancestral work to do. We have so much trauma healing to do in terms of understanding how we've inherited this trauma and and to heal it, which leads me to my next question about healing our relationship with the body, because I think that that is where it begins. And that's a lot of what Rachel does. So one of the things that I love about Paul Tillich's essay, You Are Accepted, is that he talks about grace as being the exact opposite of sin. And he talks about 
sin is being separation from yourself and others and the divine, and that grace is connection to yourself, others, and the divine. And if you've listened to me before, I've said this a bajillion times because I love it so much. And a huge piece of that is being connected to yourself. And it's the piece that I think, even if you're in a more progressive Christian space, still gets left out of the conversation. It's about feeling connected to God, and it's about being a good person to your community. But as I remember from like last lecture in college, being at a bar and like this, whatever professor it was saying, like to this whole crowd of people of college seniors saying, but if you can't love yourself first, you can't love someone else. And we all like chimed in and said it with her, or you can't love someone else without loving yourself first. And like, yes, it's a trope. Also it's true. So And it's not totally true. Obviously, you can love someone else, but you can love another far deeper once you love yourself more fully. So part of it comes back to how do I feel safe and connected within my own body? Because your body is your home. Your home is not anywhere else. Like We know that. Anyone who's moved from one place to another and found it to feel like home It's not the place that's home. It's your body that's home. And there are some places that are going to be easier to feel at home in because your body feels more comfortable there for whatever reason. But if you don't feel at home in your body, you'll never feel at home anywhere. And I think for so many Christians, the language of not feeling at home has meant, oh, that means that heaven's my home. No, no, no. It means you're so disconnected from your body that you can't feel at home in it. So how do we start to feel at home in your body? Because once you find a home in your body, then everything else feels safer because you know that you can't get kicked out of your home (laughs) until you die. And even then, I don't know what that really means. So finding a home in your body is the first step. And we do that by the things that I've been talking about for weeks, like really embracing your senses and finding sexuality to be a safe space and finding your spirituality to be an embodied incarnate spirituality, whether or not it's related to a religion or just to like looking at the stars, what helps you feel that connection space to yourself and to others and to that which is, the universe, whatever you want to call it. And so I feel like once we come home to our bodies, everything else sort of comes back into place. And the other thing that can happen is we can actually start to empathize. Because if I'm in my body and I know how to regulate myself and this is a process, I'm still in process around this, if we know how to regulate our own nervous systems, even just a little bit, then when someone comes at me with something that's not in alignment with what my belief system is, I can manage it. There's a wonderful love coach by the name, or what does she call herself? A cartographer of love. A cartographer is someone who like maps things out. So Annie Lala is her name. She's got a great Instagram account. But one of the things that she says is that human beings will defend their beliefs the way an animal will defend their life. And in this case, when it comes to particularly people who are traumatized around their beliefs, so they have to hold on to them because there's a lot of fear around this, they're going to attack the other people even more. And this goes back to that political space of like, yeah, Marjorie Greene is going to freaking attack anyone who pushes back against her beliefs. Donald Trump is going to push back absolutely against anybody who pushes that back against his beliefs because their bodies feel inherently unsafe to them. And I'm going to just say that as like a truth, even though I have no idea how they feel in their bodies, but my guess is they don't feel that safe in them because they've been taught to not feel safe. We've all been taught to not feel safe in our bodies, but the more that we can find safety in our bodies and regulating our nervous systems, the more that we can be capacious enough in our presence to be able to hold 
difference. And that work starts with us, not starts with a new idea in your brain. It starts with literally being safe in your body, which Christianity generally doesn't teach us to do. Thank you. I think that that's all very powerful and important. And the one thing that's coming to mind as you're talking is this idea of like, I hear this a lot, right? Like I get you, I'm with you. And for those of us who are listening and they're like with you, they're like, yes, we need to heal our relationship with our bodies. And I have this TikToker that I follow that talks about how we need to heal our relationship with our bodies. And this Instagrammer that I follow that tells me I need to connect to my body. And like, I hear this all the time and Richard Rohr tells me I need to do it. And Matthew Fox tells me I need to do it. And like, great, great, great. But who actually has done it? And is there any, like, who has actually figured this out? Who has done it? And do you have stories of people that you know, people you've worked with, who you've helped to connect to their bodies? Who has done this? Or is this just a mythological dream that we all have in our head that we're aiming towards, like, heaven that we'll never achieve? I mean, it is always a journey, right? It's the eschatological already and not yet, right? So naturally, we're all living in our bodies. So yeah, you feel somewhat safe in your body or else you wouldn't be in it. It's impossible to not feel some level of safety, some level of embodiment, some level of like healed relationship. And I think that's actually a good place to start (laughs) is to notice where is the health? And this is like such a huge piece of the whole program that I'm in right now that's two years long on craniosacral therapy is looking for the health. And one of the great quotes is that anybody can find the problem. Any doctor can find the problem, but what's the doctor that can find the health? And you do this when you're teaching probably is like, you don't look for the problems in a student. You look for what their strengths are and support their strengths because eventually the strengths will support the whole structure and the whole system. So the first thing is to look at what's working. And I feel like there's all the clients I'm thinking of, specifically the women I've worked with who experience vaginismus, which is pain with penetration, or vulvodynia, which is a similar condition that's just like generally pain in one's genitals. Like there's a way that the first step is to notice that you are already perfect. There's nothing that you've done wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. You are already perfect. And then from that place, you can actually build into recognizing that there's so much more. And so the first thing I usually have people start with is finding a pleasurable physical practice. And for women, I usually have them start with a vulva massage and just doing that every day for almost a month. And it can be like, and knowing that you don't have to feel pleasure. (laughs) It doesn't have to be fireworks or amazing sensation. You just have to sit with the sensation and to know that the very first step of doing a vulva massage is to check in with your body and ask your vulva, are you open to receiving this touch today? And there is permission to say no. That if you check in and it's a, it's a no, you respect that no and you did the practice. <laughs> you did it by listening to your body, which is way more important than actually touching yourself and finding pleasure. But anything that's going to be doing that is the first Noticing the health that's already there, noticing that you're perfect, moving into some sort of physical practice that's that helps you feel safe in your body and pleasure will arise when you feel safe. So if it's something that's pleasurable, you're already feeling safe. Like literally we can't feel pleasure if we are feeling unsafe. Like, and you can think about this as like just anything in your own life. If you've ever been scared, 
as somebody who's lived in a lot of cities and dark areas, like you can't be feeling pleasure or enjoying the ice cream that you're sipping, sipping. I was thinking of lattes and ice cream at the same time. You can't enjoy your latte or eat your ice cream and feel pleasure if you have a heightened nervous system because pleasure comes in only when you're calm. So if you're experiencing pleasure, you know that you're feeling some level of safety in your body. And the more that you do that practice, the more that you'll cultivate that sense of safety. And these women who have experienced vaginismus, inevitably, every woman I've worked with who experienced vaginismus has come to either have penetration not be painful and have it actually be pleasurable or has made like leaps and bounds of progress. And it's usually based, how much progress somebody makes is usually based on like how committed are they to the practice of finding pleasure and how much are they able to sit with the discomfort of being like, this is hard. It's hard to feel safe in my body. And if you can feel okay with that discomfort, not the the physical discomfort that I of like vaginismus or something, but the the internal emotional discomfort of feeling uncomfortable in your body for a little while. If you can sit with that, pleasure will eventually come and things will get better. So that's sort of the, that's where I've seen it most distinctly come up in people's work with coaching. And how has connecting to your body healed and finding intimacy with you and finding home in your body changed your life? It's so fun because I think we know that like you only teach things that are challenging for you, right? Like if it was easy for me, then I wouldn't be teaching it. Then there would I wouldn't even be able to see it to be able to teach it, right? And I think for me, so much of the comfort and pleasure in my own body has always been connected to movement. And so to start from a place of, I don't know, I'm just thinking about to like my very first yoga class where I'd been in dance classes my whole life basically, but it was always about making sure that you looked the right way, right? You have to look the same way as the person next to you, both in your physique as well as the shape of your body, like the shape that your body is making, how you're holding your arm or your leg or whatever. And I feel like finally in a yoga class over the course of the semester or the quarter, we were on a quarter system, I was finally starting to learn to appreciate my body for what it could do rather than what it looked like. And for me, that was the very first step in like healing my relationship with my body was to not see it as something I needed to control, but to see it as something I had, I was gifted with the opportunity to inhabit. And with capitalism, we're taught to control our bodies. That's what so much of like the conversation around lust in Christianity is about control. How do you control your sexuality? All the laws that people are trying to pass around abortion and gay marriage and everything else, it's about control of the body. It's not about helping you inhabit your body better. Like even when I talk about virtue ethics, right? Like that's about a little closer to inhabiting, but it doesn't go all the way there. That's like what the, if you don't know what virtue ethics is, don't worry about it. But it's what more liberal Christians will talk about as a better alternative to like rule-based ethics. They'll be like, virtue ethics is better because it tells you to do the right action multiple times and then the virtue will come about from doing the right action. But it's still ultimately in a space of control. And we don't want to be controlling our bodies. We want to be inhabiting them. And so anything you can do that can help you inhabit is really the space of healing. And for me, that was a yoga class that was finally teaching me to actually inhabit my body. And then from there, fortunately, Northwestern University's dance department, yeah, we totally had like the jazz classes and the dance classes that were very shape-based, but we also had a whole bunch of modern 
teachers and jazz and jump rhythm jazz teachers that were far more interested in how are you inhabiting your body as you're doing the movement rather than how does it look on the outside. So for me, that's where I found like a a good in. And then from there, I was able to also explore my sexuality and all those different things. But how do I inhabit this thing that that I am? There are so many directions I think this conversation could go after that, which I think is beautiful. And I'm thinking about how clients I've had where we have so much concern about dance and they don't want to dance and they even will turn off their camera when it's time to dance because they don't want to be seen embodying themselves, which I totally give all my clients permission to do. And if you're one of my clients listening to this and you're like, I turn my camera off, you are perfect and holy and wonderful for turning your camera off. But the fact that we live in a culture where that is one of the steps we need to take in order to feel safe to inhabit our bodies fully is so telling about how difficult it can be to have intimacy with our bodies. And you using dance as an example, I think is so beautiful because just simply dancing is such a liberating thing for us to be able to do and to be witnessed dancing in many ways is like sometimes the next step in like, okay, now you're okay with moving your body. Now are you okay with being seen moving your body? I think it's really powerful. So I'm going to end. And it's so different than, it's so different dancing with the intention of inhabiting your body than with the shape or then with just like pure enjoyment, which I think is what I find problematic sometimes on like the TikTok Instagram world of like, let me dance sensually for you. And it's like, not quite. If you're really inhabiting yourself, how does the movement come across? And that could look sensual, sure. And I'm sure for some of those people it does, but oftentimes it's like, no, you're just dancing around in your lingerie and it's still for the other, it's still for the gaze. It's not really for yourself yet. So how are you really just being in the exploration of how is your shoulder moving and what does it feel to move your shoulder? Can we be in that even if it's ugly? Right, because so often even... I hear you say modern dance and I totally understand what you're saying as someone who's taken modern dance and like the way it's connected to your body. And then I also think about the ways that I could look at a modern dance and critique it and be like, oh, you know, the the technique is not like really where it needs to be. And like her arm is not straight enough or like these are all the problems, bad point, like bad arch in her foot, like all whatever I could like critique. And it's almost like it's actually moving away from the beauty of what is being experienced when we're falling into our bodies. And I, we do this at dances and clubs. This is happening at live bands. People are, want to make sure they look good when they dance. And it is a lack of connection to our body. But I want to end with is do you have like one little thing that our listeners can do today to embody? I know we've talked about dancing. We've talked about doing a vaginal massage. So there are two tactics already, two tools that people can take away with today and start practicing. Is there anything else you want to flavor it with? Or do you think that those two places are the perfect place to start and you don't want to overwhelm? I mean, I feel like the another thing I would just offer is to notice what does it feel like to breathe? And I think there are some people for whom breathing feels really unsafe. If you're just focusing on your breath, it can actually start to make you feel anxious, which I think is a sign that like, oh, there's, let's be curious about why is that? Not judging it, but being curious about, okay, why is it that breathing feels 
anxiety producing if I'm focusing on my breath. But if you are somebody for whom it does not immediately provoke anxiety, even just noticing what parts of you really move when you breathe. Can you feel your pelvic floor release and tighten a little bit? Can you feel and let your belly expand and contract? Does your rib cage move and in what directions? If you're really breathing and just focusing on your breath, is there anything happening with your chest, your sternum, your chest bone, or your shoulders? If you pretend that you're going to breathe into your feet, how does that change things? What what shifts? And I think breathing is something we're obviously constantly doing or else we wouldn't be alive. And yet it's such a simple thing to connect to that can really start to allow you to settle into, oh, this is what it feels like to be in a body and to start to find that safety. If you're somebody, like I said, who doesn't automatically get like just totally anxious about noticing your breath, which is totally fine if you're one of those people. I just want to be mindful that it is something that can happen. And if it does happen for you, you're normal. It's normal. It's not, it's, it's in the realm of like what happens when people notice their breath. You're good. So, you're perfect. You're holy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's the, that's the last thing that I would offer other than the other things that we've talked about. Thank you so much, Rachel, for digging into this, I think, really powerful aspect of your work that I think is a huge treat that I think is a huge treat and a huge gift to have been able to learn more about. And if you are interested in learning more about Rachel's work, as always, you can find more about Rachel at www.sexwithspirit.com or on her Instagram at rachel.alba.coaching. If you're more interested in learning more about my work as well, or both of our work, you can visit me at at God, men, and money on Instagram and currently still www.lauriekimmerly.com, which will soon, very soon be www.godmen and with the ampersand money, God, men, and money. And that will, of course, be linked in my Instagram and our show notes when that transition happens. And you can find more about us at our Instagram at God, sex, and sangria, no ampersand. And we will see you next week for another episode about spirituality, sexuality, and the holiness of pleasure. 